listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2014. Today's episode is titled, Preparation for Success, Mastery of Scripture. To build anything that is enduringly excellent and successful, one must build according to the will and ways of God. One of the keys to accomplish this is to be trained in Scripture, which is the most clear and complete revelation about the will and ways of God. Therefore, wise management will seek to develop a learning organization that will ground every stakeholder in Scripture. Regardless of the work assignment, each person in the organization needs a biblical worldview to guide and direct his or her thoughts and actions, which enables the workers and the organization to deliver great value. Therefore, one of the keys to preparing for success, individually and organizationally, is mastery of Scripture after the pattern provided by Jesus. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Preparation for Success, Mastery of Scripture. How many of you want to be successful? Most of you. A few of you don't care, huh? A few, few of you are ambivalent, but I think if you're brutally honest, everyone wants to be a success. And would you say that one of the marks of success is to be able to get to the end of your life and know that your life counted? It meant something. And is everybody clear that in addition to the wonderful gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, we will also give an account for what we've done here? We see that in Romans 14, verse 12, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the Roman believers. And he tells them that we will all give an account for what we've done in the flesh. Now, our accountability doesn't determine our eternal state, but it does determine our rewards. And Scripture talks about the rewards that we get for our faithfulness here. So it's important, it's important that we are faithful to do what God has called us to do, and to do it well. So I like to talk about that, doing God's will, which is what he's called you to do, and doing it according to God's ways, that's doing it well. It does, it's not... It's not right to try to do God's will according to your ways. Is everybody clear on that? You can't just create your own way of doing life. You have to do life according to God's ways. Nor is it appropriate for you to try to get your will done according to God's ways. That doesn't work either. The reality is we're called to do God's will according to God's ways. So success would be that. Would you agree? God's will done by God's ways. Now, that we say that and it just kind of goes by us because we don't really think about what that means. Because we're in a world, a culture, that defines success differently. Success in the culture today is denominated in terms of dollars. I was having a conversation not too long ago with a client. And he started out this way. He said, I just had lunch today with this man, and he is a great success. I said, okay, tell me. Why did you tell me he is a great success? Now, this client knows me well enough to know he walked into a trap. Okay? And he had to admit. He said, yeah, I, I denominated success in terms of dollars. I viewed him as success because he had money. And because he made money and he built a big company and he's got 
you know, he's known all over town and he's popular and he's got influence and, you know, all those kinds of things. I said, is he a success? And my client said, well, I don't know. I said, what is success? He said, well, success has to be alignment with God. It has to be doing God's will according to God's ways. Now, would you believe that Jesus actually defined it that way? If I ask you to show me where you defined it that way, can anybody show me? Well, I'll help you. Okay, We're going to look at John 17, verse 4, which I believe is the classic definition of success in Scripture. And it's really the definition of success. Any other? John 17, verse 4. It's a very interesting text. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard a message on John 17, and, the, and your pastor has probably told you it's a high priestly prayer. It was the major interchange between Jesus and the Father before his death. Now, he certainly had an intense time of prayer in Gethsemane, but this apparently was before that. So Jesus is pouring out his heart to the Father, and in verse 3, he defines eternal life which is very interesting there. Most of us define eternal life in terms of time. Jesus did not define eternal life in terms of time. He defined it in terms of relationship. He said eternal life is knowing the Father, which means that when you come to Christ, you begin eternal life now. We think of eternal life as happening after we die. So. Jesus is setting some things in order here in this prayer. First, eternal life. And in John 17, 4, the next verse, he defines success in life for us. He says this, I have glorified you, he's speaking to the Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, that's a very interesting statement on a lot of levels. But one thing that's interesting is... He hasn't died yet. And we would arguably say his greatest work was his death. That's where he redeemed the world. But he's saying here, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Now, just a couple of comments about this. This word glorify. We, we, we use the term a lot to glorify God. And we get that from the Westminster Confession, uh, among other places. But we think of glorify, and we don't really have a clear understanding of what that means. If I were to ask you what does it mean to glorify God, you would probably fumble a little bit. Some of you may have some clarity on it. So let me just offer you some insight from the Greek word that's actually used there. And the meaning of that word is to cause the dignity and worth of a person to be manifest. That's the literal meaning of the word. So when Jesus said he glorified God, he's saying, I have caused the dignity and worth of the Father to be manifest. And how has he done that? By how he lived. Then he says, I have completed, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. This word finished is the word that we get teleology from. You heard of teleology? Who studied philosophy? 
Anybody heard of teleology? It's a Greek word for in the end, final. It's for purpose, completion. Yes. yes. Teleology is the study of purpose. Now we live in a culture that would tell you that you define your own purpose in life. That was not the way Jesus saw it. Jesus saw it as the purpose for which I am here has been defined by my Father, and I have come here to do His purpose, to complete it. So implicit in the word is not only purpose, but completion of that purpose. So I have finished, I've completed, I've done what you put me here to do. He said, I'm a man on assignment. Well, guess what? Ronnie, you're a man on assignment. You know, every one of us here, Cleburne's on assignment. Jack's on assignment. Everybody here is on assignment. The question is, do you have a clue as to what your assignment is? Now, I teach a seminar called Strategic Life Alignment, which is all about how to help you find your assignment. And in that seminar, I give you biblical tools for finding your assignment. And I find, I've been teaching that seminar for over a dozen years, so I've taught it many times in many places all around the world to many, many people, scores and scores of people. And I've yet to find anyone, no matter how mature they claim to be, no matter what position they may claim to have in a church, I haven't found anyone that really has a lot of clarity. Now that's startling to me. Because Jesus had a lot of clarity. But we don't have clarity. And most of us, that doesn't seem to bother us. What's going to happen is we're going to go out from this meeting here and go to work. We're going to be just as unclear when we go to work as we are sitting here right now. And with not really much conviction, hey, you know something, I need to really work on this. I need to gain clarity. Am I going to do what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, there are a lot of things you can do. But if you don't have clarity on what you're supposed to do, you're probably going to do some things that you're not supposed to do. Now, hopefully that convicts somebody here. Because if it doesn't, then I, I would challenge you that you are numb to the Lord. I'm not trying to be offensive to you or critical. I'm just challenging you. If you want to be sensitive to what the Lord has assigned you here to do, you have to search it out. There's a text in Proverbs that says this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. Now think about that. God, in some way, is manifested when we search out His destiny and purpose that He's hidden in our hearts. That's part of the way we glorify Him. Well, Jesus was very clear, very clear about His destiny, about His purpose. And He was about executing that. So He came here to complete the work that God had called Him to do. Now, you know, he was a little child like all of us were. And at some point, he had to gain clarity on that. You know, it didn't just, he didn't just wake up as a baby and know, I am the son of God and this is what I'm going to do. He had to grow. Scripture says he grew and he matured in wisdom and favor. You see, so he matured in this. Well, that's what we have to do. We have to mature into this. Hey, and by the way, how many of you are parents? Let me suggest to you what parenting really is. 
Parenting is about helping you discern the purpose of God for your child. And then calling that purpose out and then helping that church purpose fulfill, helping that child fulfill that purpose. Now, sadly, today, the culture that we're in doesn't teach you that. In fact, even the Christian community is not teaching you that. Because in the Christian world, we're busy trying to get people saved. And as much as we need to be saved, being saved is not the whole game of Christianity. Christianity is about a relationship with the Father, where the Father has a plan and a purpose, and each of us has a role to play. So when we come to saving knowledge of Christ, and we know Him, and therefore we know the Father, now we have to discern our role in His plan and to do it. Well, that's what Jesus did. Of course, Jesus didn't have to be saved, but Jesus still had to play the role in the plan. And so that's what he's talking about. I have finished the assignment that you gave me to do. Now, this, this, um, the Greek is very interesting here because the word finished is in the aorist tense in the Greek language. Now, in English, we don't have an equivalent to the aorist tense. The aorist tense is referring to undefined action, which means it's not highly specific as far as time goes. It generally refers to past action, but it can also refer to future action. So by saying he's finished the work, he's looking back and saying, yeah, all that's happened up to now is what the Father's given me to do. And he's looking ahead to his final work on the cross. And probably looking beyond that to the work that he's doing now to intercede for us. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So it's a, it's a big sense of this word completed. He's completed it past tense in the sense of what he's done up to then. And he's going forward with future work of death on the cross and beyond that resurrection and even into now. Now he says this word work here. Completed the work. This word work here is the word ergon in the Greek language. E-R-G-O-N in the English. That is the general word for work. It refers to all kinds of work. Now for Jesus, what did that refer to? Well, what did Jesus do before this particular prayer was spoken? If you look back, he's about 33 years old at this point. What did his life look like? Well, the first 12 years of his life were simply that of a child. He was growing and maturing. In fact, Scripture says he grew in wisdom and favor with the Lord. The grace of God was with him. And then at age 12, something happened. We have a little story about him at age 12. Does anybody remember that story? His family had a tradition. Every year they would go to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover to celebrate the Passover. That was a requirement of Jewish males. It was not a requirement of the females, but it was a requirement of the males. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which was about 60 miles from Jerusalem. And so every year, his father and his mother, who went voluntarily, and Jesus, went with a group of people, and they traveled in groups largely for safety, but they traveled from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. Now, how long do you think that would take to walk that? 
maybe three days, probably a three-day walk. So they've got to have, you know, donkeys and carts and, you know, sleeping gear and food and water and all this stuff. It's, it's a caravan. Probably a large group of people, maybe 100, 200, 300 people, who knows, caravanning down here together to Jerusalem, and they did that every year. So Jesus, by the time he's age 12, he's done this every year. He's used to this. He knows what's going on. And then they get down there, and how long are they down there? It's a week. Passover festival is a week. Okay, and then they got to go back. So this is two weeks out of their life every year. And in fact, they probably did this three times a year. They probably did it for Pentecost and probably did it again for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So they probably had six weeks a year committed to going to Jerusalem for these festivals. So on this particular occasion, the Passover festival, Jesus doesn't join the caravan going back. Now, since there's so many people, the you know his parents are not you know not all that worried because Jesus is 12 and 12 year old boys they do they do things they go run and play and do goofy things. Anybody here 12 12 year old boy or had 12 year old boys? You know what that's like. You know they're they're hard to corral, so they weren't too concerned about this. Uh, after a day into the trip, which would have been about a third of the way back, they start looking for him and they can't find him. So now they go back to Jerusalem and look. For three days they looked. And finally they found him. Where did they find him? They found him with the theological leaders of the day. He's sitting with them at age 12, interacting with the most scholarly men, most knowledgeable men in scripture of that time. And amazing them. Amazing them and the way that things work, as we understand rabbinical tradition, is that the students would ask questions of the teachers. Now, that's not what we normally do, it, is it? You know, I teach a good bit. I'm normally asking questions of the students. But in this case, the students are asking questions of the teachers, so it's kind of reversed. We kind of follow the Socratic method. Socratic method was the teacher asked the questions. But the rabbinical method was the student asked the questions. So in this interchange, Jesus is asking them questions, and apparently he was also responding to questions. So they apparently were asking questions too, because you see in the text that both of those things are going on, and that's what amazed him. They were amazed, yes. You know what I like about that method? Uh-huh. Were the students asking questions? Because then the teacher can find the students' needs. Yes. Yes, yes, because you learn a lot by hearing questions. Absolutely. So there's that interchange going on. So finally the parents show up. And the parents are saying, hey, uh, you know, hey, we haven't seen you for four days. Don't you care? And he makes an interesting comment to them. And some people think it's it was a... Uh, an unkind comment, but since Jesus never sinned, I can't believe it's an unkind comment. I believe it was a comment of reality. And that is, don't you, as my parents, understand my destiny? Don't you understand that for me to prepare for my work, I have to be here doing this? Because Jesus saw 
that a key to his preparation was a sound theological foundation. Now, I know what you're thinking immediately. You're thinking, yeah, well, he needed that to do his role as a teacher. That's what you're thinking. But, but you need to understand at age 12, what's going to happen over the next 18 years? He's going to become a carpenter. Now, some people claim that the carpenter back then is not the carpenter of today. Most of us have had experience with carpenters today. You know, they're people that work with wood. But back then, the carpenter was more like a general contractor. They built things, and they worked with all kinds of materials. So it's very likely that Jesus was a general contractor. Now, why was he a general contractor? Well, very simply, that was the work of his earthly father, Joseph. Sons followed the trade of their fathers. That was a common thing back then. And at age 12 is when you began to typically apprentice under your father. So Jesus was preparing to start his role as an apprentice to his father, who was a general contractor, and he's preparing for it by studying theology. Now, does that grab you? Like, what? Because he said, don't you know I gave up my father's word? Yes. It's, it's, it's actually, it's, uh, some of the translations say, I must be about my, about my father's business. That word business is not in the text. That is an inferred translation. But it's about, I must be about my father's, and you could say father's purpose, my father's destiny, my father's, you know, you know, work, my father's business. There's a lot of ways you could express it, but he's saying, I am lining up with the will of my father, my earthly, my heavenly father. And the way I do that is I get underneath my earthly father. You hear what he's saying? I'm getting ready to go be a general contractor. And to do that well, I've got to be theologically sound. So I need this interchange with these great men of God who can help me understand the scripture better. Remember, Jesus is growing. Right before this incident, it talks about Jesus growing in wisdom and the favor of God. And at the end of that incident, it again says he's growing in wisdom and the favor of God. He's maturing. He's learning. He's getting grounded in truth so he can do his work as a general contractor. Now, of course, that's going to lead ultimately to a work as an itinerant teacher. He had two phases of his life. Once he was hit 12, he was a carpenter, a general contractor, and then he was an itinerant teacher. That was what he was assigned to do. And to prepare him to do that, he had to be grounded in the truth. Now, may I suggest to you that that's what we have to have as well. It does not matter what you do. You can be an engineer. You can be a contractor, you can be in real estate, you can be in sales, you can be in management. It doesn't matter what you do, you need to be grounded in the truth. That's the only way you will discern the will of God and do it well. So this is the pattern Jesus gives us. So at the end, in John 17, 4, after now age 33, we would jump forward from age 12 to age 33, so now 21 years later... Jesus is looking back on his life and saying, I have completed the work assignment you gave me. 
I've done it according to your will and your ways, and that's how I've glorified you. And so now, he said, I'm ready, I'm completed, I'm ready to come to be with you. Now, there will be an end to our lives, barring the return of Christ. And we will give an account. Romans 14, 12 says that. What do you want to be able to say to the Father? What do you want to be able to say? That would be a great thing to say. Now, most of us are going to be thinking, well, I made a bunch of money, did a bunch of deals, built a bunch of stuff, or had a bunch of trips, you know, things like that. And there's nothing wrong with those things as long as God has assigned you to do those things. You know, to go and buy something, anything, requires permission, permission from the Father. You do not have the right in and of yourself to go decide where you live, what you drive, where you're going to vacation, who you're going to marry, all those kinds of things. Everything in life should ultimately be done seeking the will of God. And that's how Jesus lived. And at the end, we're going to give an account. And it's not going to be based on what you think is success. It's going to be based on what God defines success to be. And his definition of success is very clear. His will done his ways. So it makes everything in life a spiritual activity. What you put in your mouth this morning was a spiritual activity. What you're going to do once you walk out of this room is a spiritual activity. How you choose to live today and interact with people, the decisions you make, is a spiritual activity. It's always about what is his will and what are his ways to do his will. This makes life a daily walk with God. This is how Jesus lived. And this is why he was able to say at the end of his life, Father, I've brought you glory. I've manifested you. People could look at me and see you. That's the way we're supposed to live. And the way we do it is by completing the work assignment you gave me to do. To prepare for that work assignment, I need to be rooted and grounded in truth. And so, what could be some takeaways here? Well, let me offer a couple of takeaways for you that will help you. First and foremost, you need to be a student of Scripture. If you're not a student of Scripture, then you you are disconnected from the guidance that you need to really discern the will and ways of God. You must be a student of Scripture. Secondly, You need to be under authority. If you're not under the authority of godly men, if you're not under the authority of your parents, if you're not under the authority of your employer and your church leadership, then you are going to make a lot of mistakes. Because those authority figures are divinely put in your life to guide you into the will and ways of God. Now, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, man, you don't understand... My dad is a total alcoholic. He has no clue about reality. Well, let me explain this to you. God knows who your dad was. He gave you your dad. And he knows the warts of your dad. He will still use your dad regardless of the dysfunctionality of your dad. No no father is perfect. Some are far better than others. And that's that's a gift of God when you have a really great father. 
But even if your father's highly dysfunctional, God's still going to use him. And there's a reason you have that father. And God makes up for deficient fathers with spiritual fathers. Spiritual fathers come in and fill in the gaps for what earthly fathers can't do. Remember the movie, The King's Speech? Any of you see that movie? Great picture of how the king, King George, was able to do what he was called to do, but it took both an earthly father and a spiritual father to enable him to do it. That's the way God works. So you need to get under authority. If you're not under authority, then you are probably missing a lot of what God wants you to do. You're either missing his will and or you're missing his ways. So those are two key things. Get in the word. Be under godly people who can teach you the word. Be submitted to authority. If you can't identify the men that God has put you under, you are probably not under authority. And let me add another way that you know you're under authority. You know you're under authority when the people that you're submitted to tell you something you don't want to do and you do it. They tell you something you don't like and you still do it. They tell you something you don't understand and you still do it. That's the mark that you're under authority. So Jesus lived as a man under authority. He was a student of scripture. He grounded himself in the word and therefore he grew in wisdom. This is the way you discern the work that you've been called to do. Interesting, too, in that text in John 17, 4, the word work there is in the singular. It isn't works. It's work. Jesus is looking at his life as an integrated whole, as the work that he had been given to by the Father. Everything. His 18 years as a, a general contractor or a carpenter and his three years as an itinerant teacher. All of that was included in the work. And so we need to begin seeing our life as the work that we're called to do. Not the works, but the work we're called to do. What, what authority was Jesus under? Under the Father's authority? He's under the Father's authority, but he operated as a carpenter under his earthly Father's authority. He submitted to the authority of the religious leaders of the time to be taught the scripture underneath them. For his entire life, he was under some authority. Even when he was dealing with the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders who were hypocrites, he still submitted to the priest and to the line of authority in the Jewish faith. He always was, was faithful to that. He recognized hypocrisy. And call that out. But he was faithfully submitted to the Jewish faith. Because that was the faith he was in. Instead of he challenged it out on you can't heal a man on Sabbath or I mean you can't it seemed like he was always challenging it. He was challenging them because they were hypocrites. They were just trying to here's a bunch of rules that we've made up. He talked about the rules of man. Well, that, but he was also talking about how the Pharisees made up rules. Yeah. They would take a, a rule and expand on it and embellish it beyond what the law actually said. He obeyed the law. He believed in being submitted to the law, but not the man-made rules that were not in the law. So that's what he objected to. 
was how people made up rules. We make up rules today about how we live today. Hey, we need to go back to what Scripture says and live according to Scripture. In public policy, they do that, not to mix secular things with spiritual things. They, they put a law in the books in, in Congress, and then they put rules to the law. And that's interpretation value. Yeah. the same basic concept. But as you say, you know, the law is the law. Mm-hmm. The rules to it are interpretations of how it will be implemented. Mm-hmm. And when, when you are making interpretations and your heart is not right with God, then your interpretations are going to be skewed. Okay, So you look for men whose hearts are right with God first and foremost. They have the best ability now to draw out the truth of what God is trying to do through that law, or through that regulation, or through that guidance. Just one more question for you. On, uh, and I'm, I've got the New King James Version. Mm-hmm. And I just want to... I liked what you told me another layer of depth that I haven't thought about here. But when he said, why did you seek me? Mm-hmm. Did you not know that I must be about my father, capital F, father's business? Mm-hmm. So I understand from what you're, you're teaching me today that he's talking about, um, about his heavenly father, but you're also saying there is a component of being submitted to his yeah. earthly father in that particular yeah. Well, look what he did. He left and went with them. And then we know he became the carpenter's son and ultimately became the carpenter. Yeah. No, I understand that part. I just, I never thought of it. I always thought of that as about the father's business. I never thought but about his earthly father. The that. father's business was to be submitted to his earthly father. Right. That's, I mean, that to me is the wonder of it all. You know, he certainly, he was seeing something of the purpose of God for his life at age 12. And he knew that the right thing for him to do was to submit to his earthly father. Oh well, yeah, I, I know that's the right thing to do. I just never, I never took it in that regard. I yeah. thought he was about his father's business, teaching yeah. and exchanging in, yeah. in yeah. the synagogue. Yeah, see, we, we don't recognize that he's getting ready to go and become a carpenter for 18 years. Right. Whoa, wait a minute. I mean, that's what we do, isn't it? And, you know, we, we're going to go out from here and go do our work of you know, being a carpenter in our modern ways. But we have to go and do what Jesus did, which is go and do our work assignment grounded in truth. Being under godly men to teach us truth and being submitted to authority in all areas of life. So that we can do the will of God according to the ways of God. And then at the end of our life, we can say what Jesus said. Father, I've completed the work you've given me to do. And I've glorified you by doing it. Now, that's success, gentlemen. You want that? If we want success, true success, we got to live the way Jesus lived. That's the only way to true success. Yeah, I've always considered my employment as like my, just what gets me into the door to share Jesus with people. So, in this new position, I was thinking, God ordained this, it just happened, it came in out of sight, and I asked God about this, and, you know, I I took this position, and I'm going to share him and I'm going to show him 
to those that I'm in authority over and that are, I'm, in a, if, I'm submitting to their authority. And let me suggest, if you never get to say one thing to anyone about the gospel with your mouth, let your life glorify God. Manifest God in how you live. Every decision, every interaction, thoughts, your priorities, how you use time, how you use resources. You know, everything about your life should exude Christ. That's how you glorify Him. That's the greatest way. Yeah. We, we tend to get very, we tend to think being a Christian in the workplace is being ethical and evangelizing. No, I, I, don't, I don't evangelize with, you typically would think about evangelizing. It's got to be with your actions. That's exactly right. Your life. Your testimony is your life, it's not your words. And people see it, you don't even know. That's right. I've got a young fellow I mentored, he's been a CEO of a couple companies, and now he's, he's very high up in a company called Teledon. And we were talking the other day, and he wanted me to come over his company. And interestingly enough, that I met with the AVP of, that under him right after I took this job. Yeah. And he says, I'm lamenting that I missed the opportunity to bring you over. And it was interesting because I had talked to God about that. But when I told that CEO, he comes from a Jewish lineage. His, his ethnicity is Jewish. He doesn't practice that religion. He knows who I am. And I talked to him, and he said, well, whatever you do is going to go well because I know who you're connected to. And he, when I talked to him, I told him why I took this because I, I, wanted, I want to go to the unfamiliar. I want the glory, I want the glory to be to God and to be in something mm-hmm. safe and familiar. I don't feel it's going to be that. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to share, what I'm saying that is I'm able to share that with this man who doesn't profess yeah. Jesus or God or, yeah. or anything, but he knows, he can see it because I've spent a lot of time around him. Mm-hmm. I never preached to him that, you know, this is this, this is that, or brought this evangelism to him, but it was more of a working. And you're right, it can take 25 years. When I moved here to Dallas, I got a phone call. It was, it was a torrential downpour. I was in Nashville. I had to drive here because I brought an old 14-year-old lab with me, or at the time, 13. And I got a call from a friend of mine, and he said, I want to call to apologize to you. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's, why is that? He goes, I just found Jesus, and he's been telling me about him for 22 years, and I haven't listened. Yeah. But I've seen it in you. Yeah, that's good. Those are very rewarding calls when you get them. I've had those calls before myself. Yeah, and they're... so it's, it's all about what you build in the long term. And, mm-hmm. You know, I guess, I guess you learn patience in that Yeah, yeah, you do. You learn about the Lord's timing. One of the quick point, and we'll, we'll conclude. When Jesus left that scene in Jerusalem at age 12, with his parents, obediently leaving with his parents, it said Jesus increased in wisdom. He already manifested a lot of wisdom. But he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, how many of you hire people? Most of you hire people? Would you like to hire someone that you had a lot of confidence would be successful? Would you say that would be somebody who was increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man? That would be somebody that's very likely to be successful? Because they're lining up with the will and ways of God. And that's why it gets blessed. 
So this, this is gives you some tips on hiring. Find the people that are hungry to walk out the will and ways of God, that are called to be part of your organization. That's one of the greatest ways you can hire the right people. Well, Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the heart and the hunger here on each part of each person here to grow and mature in you. Grant them grace to do that well for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.